Hey, Courtney. How are you? I'm doing really well. It's a beautiful snowy day in Colorado. How about yourself? Oh, pretty good. I miss the days of living near snow. Um, we kind of have a special episode today. Do you want to tell our listeners a little about it, Courtney? Yes. So you may notice that Kara and Chris, our regular hosts, are out. And so this episode is a very special HBA fellow takeover. And we're very excited to welcome Dr. Meredith Snow to the show. Dr. Snow is an associate professor and co-chair of anthropology at the University of Montana. There, she and her research team analyze ancient and degraded DNA for anthropological and forensic purposes. Her lab focuses primarily on the northern region of prehistoric Mexico. And today she is here to talk to us about a paper she has in review titled A Reanalysis of Population Dynamics in the Casas Grandes region of northern Mexico using mitochondrial DNA. I think she's in the waiting room. Um, so why don't we go ahead and let her in? Hi, Meredith. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. How about y'all? We're great. We were Good. About, thank you. We were talking about the snow. Are you getting a lot of snow in Montana right now? No, we haven't. It's been actually really weird. Um, it is like above freezing today, which for December in Montana is extremely odd. Uh, so climate change, anybody? But yeah, no, definitely. Um, we, we've got like hit with like two storms, but it's all melted in between. And and like I actually got to ride my bike today, which normally when it gets too icy, I have to walk. So like just it's odd. So. I, I did my PhD at UMass, so I'm always, you know, now that I live in the South, I'm always talking about how not cold the South is and thinking I have all this, like, you know, built up all this cold credibility, but then I talk to folks from Montana or Minnesota, and yeah, I, I yeah. do not know cold coming from Massachusetts compared to <laughs> Well, I'm from California originally, and uh, we didn't have winter, <laughs> so and I moved up here and I was like, oh yeah. That's right. It's all about finding the right clothing is what I've really come to find. Like, And I don't think we've met before, so I'll just introduce myself. I'm Eric Griffith. Um, I am one of the junior service fellows with the HBA, and I uh, did my dissertation at UMass on um, Alzheimer's disease caregiving between Mexico and the U.S. And I'm saying that because we have that fieldwork in Mexico commonality, so I just wanted to get that out there. Nice, nice. That's awesome. I know that you and I know each other, Meredith, but I'm Courtney Manthe Pierce, and Meredith uh, will hopefully be my advisor at the University of Montana. Yep, definitely looking forward to the fall having you around here, for sure. If I don't scare you off today, so. <laughs> oh my goodness. We always start uh, by learning more about the scientist. Uh, the theme of the podcast is the sausage of science. So can you tell us a little bit how your personal sausage of science was made, what your background is, and how you got to the point of writing this paper? Yeah, so, so my sausage, that sounds terrible but I have to say it. Um, anyhow. That's why I said very explicitly sausage of science. <laughs> science I know. I just, I, I, every time I hear it, there's that little part of my brain that's like a third grader that like makes a joke. I can't stop myself. Anyhow. Um, uh, no, I got started um, uh, really enjoying studying people. I was always what I knew I wanted to do. Um, but I really did not want to study the living because God knows I don't want to talk to people as much as possible. And so I was always very much interested in the past and, um, archaeology is actually where I started, uh, thinking that that was kind of the perfect fit. And I'm uh, going to be really, really honest. I hated it. And, and uh, so I got my degree in it. Don't get me wrong. I have a lot of archaeological background, so it actually really helps with what I do now, but studying potsherds and lithics is not studying people in my mind. It is an extrapolation from stuff. Sure, you can learn a lot of information, but it's not. So 
Um, that was where I actually really, really wanted to, to move into genetics. Um, that's what I ended up doing for my graduate work. That was much more of a perfect fit for me. I've always been uh, very interested in in that side of science. Uh, my mom was a geneticist, like that's kind of very, very much in my genes. Ha <laughs> ha. So um, that's very much where I ended up in terms of my research, kind of marrying anthropology with, with ancient DNA. And then actually I've had so many paths open to me from that. Ancient DNA actually is kind of a gateway drug for a lot of other cool stuff that you can do with it. So I got done with my dissertation and I didn't have a job. Like most people at that point. Uh, if you do cool beans, hell yeah for you, but I did not. And uh, so I decided to to go travel. I was like, I'd, I'd had a really, really bad car accident in grad school. Um, some lady blew through a stop sign going like 60 miles an hour and damn near killed me. So I had a little bit of money, um, which is ridiculous the way you end up with that. But hey, sometimes it works out. So I decided to um, go travel. I spent a good long time in Barcelona and Spain. Then I ended up in Japan. Uh, while I was there, I got an email from my advisor that they had, a job had opened up here in Missoula, Montana. And I ended up interviewing in the bathroom of the house I was living in, in uh, Kyoto. And I uh, got the job. So I came back to the States and then moved up here. It was technically supposed to be for one year. And here I am now. So 11 years later, 10 years, that sort of stuff. So yay. Honestly, I hate to say how much it is of like, hey, you know, like I hate that aspect, but there is an element of it for sure. And I feel very lucky in that regard. So that's an amazing story. It made me love you even more. I'm just doing little hearts <laughs> to you the whole interview. So for <laughs> listeners, there will be hearts to Meredith the whole time. And I also loved your gene joke. It was quite humorous. <laughs> uh, yes, I, I'm ridiculously silly. Sometimes I, I was like this morning going, how am I going to not do that? And then, oh, yeah, no, there's no way. So <laughs> I think that's why we get along so well. <laughs> okay, so you mentioned working with ancient DNA, which is actually something that the human bio crowd isn't always so aware of. So can you actually talk to us a little bit more about what it's like to work with ADNA and then also the ethical and technical considerations? that you have to navigate? Absolutely. So I'm going to start with the lab stuff and then, then I'll bridge into the rest of that. Uh, the main enemy of ancient DNA um, is going to be contamination. So, uh, you know, that's going to be everything and anything that this individual might come into contact with after being excavated. So very much a big proponent of anybody who's thinking about ancient DNA as part of their research. Definitely make sure you know that if you are doing excavations really of any kind um, and kind of maybe talk to somebody ahead of time. Um, but yeah, I would say then beyond that, we get into, a, I have a clean room here. So it's um, a very controlled space. We go in, I have like a, a intermediate room, an antechamber where we get dressed. Um, we put on what I refer to as the body condom. Um, so we are going to then uh, basically, it's, it's a full body Tyvek. We have a face mask, hair net, arm guards, feet, every, you know, the whole nine yards. And um from there, well, then we go in and uh, work in uh, the controlled environment that has like positive airflow um, or positive pressure airflow as uh, UV lights on everything. <laughs> and um, I have a, a brand new, I'm very excited about it, air filter that I, I love, although it is the noisiest goddamn thing on the planet. And um, yeah, it's it's very much about controlling that environment, being extremely careful about even how you like put everything out on the lab bench like you're like oh hey I gotta I can't can't reach over anything right so you have to have like your assembly line 
And so it, it's just being extremely mindful of everything that you're doing um, for that aspect of it, for like the lab work side of it. And then beyond that, it, it, once you get out of there and get stuff sequenced, it's it's a lot of other bioinformatics work and things like that that um, get complicated, um, especially since most of the time you're getting data that is not like what you would get if you had cheek swabs from somebody. It's It's always going to have degradation of some kind and not be perfect and beautiful and if you can't handle that then i'm sorry it sucks <laughs> so <laughs> be prepared for for shitty data sometimes but yeah um so then beyond that definitely um any sort of ancient dna project particularly when then you're using humans but also not humans as well like i've done some research with with paleo feces and this also comes up but like everything has to have some sort of um work with descendants or uh if you know who they are that's always a trick um but also then like other communities and things like that to make sure that you know you're not basically trampling all over individuals rights even if they are deceased like you have still individuals that you should be communicating and working with um i work primarily in mexico and i will be really honest like things are super different there like it is not something you can just pick up the set of rules and there's so many publications of like what you should do in the US and that's very cool and that's exactly what you should be doing, but you cannot whole hog move those down into Mexico. Things are super different. You have different people you need to talk to, different rules and regulations. Um, their archaeological sites, and this includes individuals that were interred there, are all protected in their constitution. So like there's a very different process by which you go by about actually applying to a centralized organization for permission. And then utilizing that for then reaching out to uh, local individuals and, and local people if they allow it. There's some other things that kind of go into that. So um, it's it's honestly <laughs> working in Mexico. Uh, I, I hate to say this is actually a lot easier because they do have like a process by which you go by. You know who you need to talk to. They're going to be very upfront, very open about what you need to do, how you do it, how you get your yearly renewals, all that sort of stuff. Um, and that is great. It's just very, very helpful <laughs> in a lot of ways. I really love working with them, honestly. Um, some days it takes a long time to get some stuff back, but you know, uh, honestly, they do an amazing job for what they do. And I really appreciate that. And then from there, you know, we do a lot of public outreach in the community that we work with, Casas Grandes, which is just uh, the most adorable little town um, in northern Mexico. It's about three hours south of El Paso, for those of you who may not know. And I just, I love it there. Like, there's this little town square, and it has all these little cute shops around it. And um, then, like, just, like, four or five blocks away, you have, like, the UNESCO World Heritage site of Pacume. And, like, it's very fun. So, you know, I've, I've <laughs> talked things from, like, giving talks at the museum that's there, all the way to, like, I meet with individuals, rotary clubs. Go figure. It's super random, but it's super fun. Um, and I really, really enjoy it. It's honestly just such a, an amazingly wonderful place. I'm curious about it. So also I partnered with the Rotary organization as well when I was in Mexico. Mm -hmm. So I definitely relate to that. Um, but, you know, it's really interesting hearing how uh, you had to, you know, work to build up all of these partnerships. And I'm wondering if you can just speak a little more about who you've ended up partnering with um, in detail. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, there is then in each of the states of Mexico, um, there is going to be an individual who's like the state archaeologist. So I work a lot with him. Uh, and that individual is 
just amazing. He's, he's just a wonderful human. Um, and then from there, I work primarily with the individuals at the museum where the individuals um, and all the rest of the artifacts and things were excavated back in the 70s um, and up to today are kept. So it's the Museum of the Cultures of the Northern Mexico, uh, like the museum director, um, the collections manager, and uh, like the site manager are all individuals that I work extensively with. Um, and then there's like a host of other people that work there as well. So like last summer, um, I was down there with a couple of my grad students and getting them set up and things like, like that. And basically, we just had like all the museum staff who are just lovely humans. And so we work with them um, to get things going and they, they help out as, you know, as best they can with the resources that they have, which we've definitely donated a lot of other things to, to like help ensure that they have like freezers and things like that for samples. So quick follow-up to that. Uh, so the paper we're talking about specifically that you, um, you know, you drew data, use this data to write, um, looks at mitochondrial DNA of 148 uh, individuals from the Casas Grandes region. So you can tell us a bit more about why this area and this period of time is of interest for an anthro slash ancient DNA investigation? Yeah, absolutely. So it is a location wherein we see a relatively rap rapid transition from small, like, pit house communities to really what we would refer to as a city, right? It's a huge complex and with lots of multi-storied rooms and uh, definitely large occupation. We know there's a lot of people there that are doing a whole lot of trade and all sorts of other cool stuff. So that shift um, is very clear and apparent in the archaeological record. But what motivated it is actually then something that's been debated extensively. Um, going back to like the first big excavation there, uh, which is going to be by DePezzo, Charles DePezzo, um, back in the, the late 60s. And he really thought that it was like a trading outpost for Mesoamerica because there is clear, massive influence from Mesoamerica, macaws and ball courts and all sorts of other cool stuff that were definitely going to have Southern influence. And now there's definitely also Northern influence of this region. Um, so DePezzo was like, okay, so people from someplace in Mesoamerica came up here and established a trading post and then they were trading with the Southwest up North in the U.S., I should say. And from there, um, you know, he, he was trying to make this argument that basically it was not the local individuals who were doing this fluorescence of the city like they did not have an active role in it it was very much um you know they might have sure been the people that built it uh manually but they weren't the ones that instigated it themselves um so that idea um has been proliferated upon by so many other researchers um that have made this argument that like people who are coming from the north or coming from the south and doing you know all this sort of thing but basically the root of all those other ideas was that again like there was no impetus for this growth from the individuals that were native to that area. And so I was very interested in if that actually was the case. Um, were we seeing migration of being um, a prime motivator for the growth of human groups from going from a small population to a large city? Um, what, what was that motivator? And definitely the site is a very good place to look for that, especially knowing that we have a lot of hypotheses about that being the result of some sort of influx of individuals. Um, so we really were spending a lot of time trying to, to be very mindful of these ideas and fueling how we were looking at the population. That was what I was mainly interested in, was trying to figure out what was going on and how that, how that changed. 
So what specific questions were you asking in the paper to kind of challenge this idea that, you know, the region wasn't just a trading outpost? And then can you also tell us a little bit more about the particular groups of people that you were looking at? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we were basically testing, all right, are these individuals um, at the site of Pakime, are they local? Or are they not? Like, um, and so we utilized uh, individuals from there and compared them to another site that is within spinning distance of the city that we know dates to much earlier, the Convento site, which was actually also de- uh, excavated by DePezzo. So we kind of had a nice comparison between these two. Um, where we knew the dates um, were going to like be pre-pocument and the main period there. And so what we were attempting to do is compare these two. And if we could see whether or not there was a massive shift in the mitochondrial frequencies and sequences that would explain, oh, okay, well, you know, it looks very different in the later period from the earlier period. That was really what we were after. Very simple question. Um, And hoping that we could utilize then mitochondrial DNA to be able to demonstrate this. And what we saw very much was a clear um, similarity between the earlier site, the Convento site, and uh, then the later Pakime site. So the individuals that lived in these two locations at different time periods had um, actually shared mitochondrial haplotypes, um, as well as just a com- very, very similar pattern overall. So what this helps us to see then is, okay, if there was an influx of individuals, and, and definitely we know they were trading, so there's people moving around, um, but we can say, okay, well, there wasn't a dramatic shift. And from that, we can say well, there's no migration that was female mediated or at least participated in, in a, to a large extent. And that really that like the individuals living at these sites were probably then the same uh, genetic population, um, as far as we can tell. Recognizing, you know, mitochondrial DNA has limits, very much so. Um, I will never argue that it doesn't. One part of this is looking at the population explosion, in quotes, for the viewers at home, as well as cultural and material complexity. So can you talk to us about how material culture can help us learn about ancient DNA and vice versa, since that's not necessarily intuitive for everyone, I don't think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, I think that honestly, ancient DNA should never really exist in a vacuum. Um, It's one of those things that is a tool amongst many others for better understanding how things work. So the material culture here, you know, is, is... rich i should say it's got we've got all of these different sites there are not as many as we would like potentially from the older um viejo period is what it's called which is old in spanish which makes me laugh um but basically you know those sites that we have excavated demonstrate um differences from what we see later we actually have you know pakime is a big city there's a couple of other sites in the region that demonstrate also these big multi-roomed apartment-like complexes, basically, with all this other material culture um, that goes along with it. And then beyond not just like the architecture and the changes that we saw with this population growth, we also start to see trade goods shifting and changing in number, especially now in the older period, definitely they're going to see individuals trading, but uh, this increases exponentially to the point there was like millions of pieces of shell that we think are probably from the west coast of Mexico, it, in Pakime, like, there's these huge caches of things. Um, I think, you know, that's probably contributing to the trading, um, at least with the west coast of Mexico. And then also there's like turquoise and a variety of other things that are going to help us point to other regions within the U.S. Southwest and Northwest Mexico um, that established 
there's something going on here. Um, but I will say that this question of whether or not the population is continuing from the older to the Bakima period was not something that we have been able to establish without ancient DNA. That's the reason why we did this um, particular study, because really the archaeologists had come to a stalemate of being like, well, we think it was migrants or we think it was the locals. And we everybody was like, oh, my God, we can't figure this out. Lots of heated debates. So what we ended up seeing basically was like, really, the only way that people were going to be able to figure out what was going on was actually analyzing individuals' genomes to be able to, or mitogenomes, to be able to figure out was it the same? Was it different? What was going on? So what exactly did you find from your analysis? And what is the big picture takeaway? Yeah. Uh, so basically what we found was, hey, as I said earlier, like they look identical, these two populations in terms of um, both their haplogroups and haplotypes. And, you know, admittedly, the Comento site is a little bit smaller. The sample size is not as large because there weren't as many individuals interred there. But definitely from a pretty sizable sample size of individuals from these sites, what we see is... Um, continuity, which helps to then establish that one of those hypotheses about where these people came from is there. And to me, this is also extremely important because it gives the individuals that are local to this area and their ancestors that have been there for, you know, however long, thousands and thousands of years, that they did not have some imposing outside source. It was actually something that they uniquely came up with themselves and were able then, yes, maybe draw on ideas from other places because we see that, you know, some in like door shapes and things like that. But definitely that these individuals had their unique agency and were not going to be just the tools of other individuals from elsewhere. And that that I think is extremely important. And when I do talk to people, especially in Mexico, I'm giving these discussions and going out into the community and, and trying to spread the word of what we're doing. Sorry, that sounds like proselytizing, but maybe it kind of is. But um, uh, what we're seeing there is definitely a lot of individuals being like, oh, well, this is really awesome. Because if you go and like walk around the site, there's signs up that build off of this DePezzo idea that it was a trading post that individuals had come here and built this city because they were like imposing their outside ideas there. But actually, really, what it gives is like this um, power and identity and um unique interest in this location for those individuals who are actually there who, who did this amazing thing. Although not that we know who those people were. That That's a huge debate. And none of the local groups actually claim that it was them. So we're still a little bit like, well, someday. Uh, this is more of a science communication question. Um, but, you know, you're talking about translating this this ancient DNA, these ancient DNA concepts, which are probably hard for some, even some folks in, in the listenership with a, with a heavy academic background to understand without doing some reading. So can you give us some tips on how you, you know, translate, for lack of a better term, these concepts to um, to folks who aren't in the academy and so maybe don't have that like, very specific biology training? Oh, yeah, no, definitely. That's hard. Always. Uh, I'm, I'm extremely lucky that I grew up speaking Spanish so I can do this pretty do that hurdle. Right. Because that is definitely one of the biggest first ones you're going to come across. Um, but beyond that, um, I, I do spend every time I do this, at least a little bit of time, like, hey, what is a mitochondria? More than just the powerhouse of the cell. So what we're attempting to do is, you know, go into this information a little bit, but really boil it down to a point where I find that I am able to get through some of the other hurdles that come up with understanding. Because, yeah, I mean, 
health. I have undergrads here that certainly do not understand how this would work, let alone populations that admittedly may not have as much education as here Some in some certain places, obviously not everybody, but there are certain elements of that in certain areas that I go and visit. So um, it's also a lot of being there to answer questions. I very much spend most of my time just interacting with people. Like I, I have my spiel, right? Like I can give this information. We can talk a lot about what's going on, all the cool stuff that's happened. But I definitely focus mostly on trying to ensure that people understand. I don't, I don't want to leave and then be like, well, that was totally over my head. You know, like that's very much not my, my goal. I really, really like to, to visit and try to be friendly and go over things and then be like, how do I explain this better to you? Are you understanding? You know, like just go into it as much as possible. Yeah. And how much, how often are you able to go into the field and for how long? Like, so how much time do you spend in Northern Mexico each year? Uh, I wish it was a lot longer, usually like at least two weeks every year. That varies a good deal. Um, yeah, I, I really wish it was more. It's it's hard to get to is the only thing. And uh, considering I don't have anybody else to pay for it right now, it's out of my own pocket to go down there um, and to take students and things like that. I don't make enough to spend as much time down there as I would like. So thank you, UM, for never funding anything I do, but that's okay. Yeah, that's the, it's like the paradox of anthropology. We all go into the field and we, we get these amazing graduate school experiences. And then once you're done and you're in a tenure track position, I, I feel like we're, it's just a constant struggle to leave it all. Yeah. So yeah, I feel like that'll really resonate with a lot of people. And it's, it's, it's really unfortunate. It is. It really is. I'm like, I have stuff I could do so much cool things. I want to be there and interacting and, you know, yeah, being a good human about it, you know, and like, ugh. And you know how to do it now, right? Like as a grad student, we're all like stumbling along learning. And then once we actually know how to do it, then we stop. It's very, yeah. very important. Like, you shall not have money. And, and yeah, so, <laughs> so yeah, it's tricky for sure. As we wrap up, what are you up to these days other than applying for a really cool GRFP that looks at PCOS research? Cough, cough. <laughs> 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 it was mine. It was my GRFP okay, for listeners. Um, <laughs> but what fun sciencey things are you up to these days? Oh my God. Uh, we are, we are very busy here. Um, we got lots of cool shit going on. Um, so continuing our work in Pakime, we're also working in West Mexico um, with an attempt to get better um, understanding of, of the populations there, particularly than in relationship to Pakime. So we got that going on. Uh, we just recently started um, a project with some populations in Poland um, through a collaborator, which is super fun. Um, very much enjoying getting that going. And we do a lot of forensic work here, definitely. Um, and I have been bridging into that a lot more um, recently, particularly since a few years ago, I ended up taking over the Forensic Anthropology program here. Um, so I've been doing that extensively um, and working with communities around Montana, particularly a lot of indigenous communities, and attempting then to help with uh, not only searches, but excavations and the missing and murdered um, indigenous people's epidemic is awful. Um, and it really hits a lot of communities here in Montana. So um, my big goals have been to try to get that, um, try to, to do what we can to, to really help as much as possible. So and kind of tied in with the forensic work, there is a lot of work that we do for like an, a, establishing where um, 
And uh, the postcrania is good to sample because, you know, we don't always get heads. So um, that sort of thing. And definitely a lot of, of research along those lines. There were teeth that you and I had talked about. And they were like lost in the mail or they were stuck in customs. And so maybe you can oh my speak God. about how people mail oh. items like that, how how you go about doing that. I know that's a little off topic, but oh no, totally. I'm sure everybody would love to hear about mailing teeth. <laughs> Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. So the Poland teeth um, got stuck in customs for months. Um, and like me and the Polish individual on the other end were like calling and freaking out, right? Like precious samples. I mean, going back to the funding thing, it's not like anybody has money to like fly over to Poland and get the teeth and then bring them back with you. I've done that to Mexico most of the time because like I can get down there a little bit easier, but Poland's a whole other trip <laughs> in terms of getting it's a lot longer. So yeah, like it just got stuck in customs for forever. We're both like watching the website and it was just like, it's sitting on a shelf someplace in New Jersey. Like everything had been done appropriately. Like nobody was like breaking any laws, sending these along. It just sat there for forever. We did finally get them after they went back to Poland and then sent again. And yeah, we do have them now. Um, and they, they are being processed. All is good. Next time you should just call the tooth fairy. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> that's where you're gonna get your funding you need to call the tooth fairy and cash those bad boys in meredith right exactly get a exactly bunch of all the other random teeth we have in our collection here for like teaching teeth which i hate teeth i i mean you'll just have like ever... a big bag of quarters you'll go to like the airport counter and get a ticket our regular faculty hosts chris and Kara are trying desperately for the HBA to bring the talent show back to the annual meeting. I'm fine with not having a talent show because I want no part of being roped into public performance. So that that's, you know, I'm, I'm going to lay that at Chris and Kara's feet to make that happen. Um, but if they are successful and somehow bringing the talent show back, uh, what talent would you showcase at an HBA meeting? Yeah, I've been thinking about this and I always, I do love listening to this question from everybody that does answer it. And all the other episodes uh it's so fun but i am not going to ever sing or dance in public that would be horrifying uh but if i you know this is not something i could necessarily get up and perform but i do write novels um and that would be something that i would showcase somehow i don't know how um no way in hell would i do a reading either for that matter i write genre fiction and i know people like judge that harshly but you know that would be i guess that would be it Maybe. Are you, are you willing to share what your uh, what your preferred fandom is? Like, what franchise are you most into? I'm definitely a Star Wars fan. I don't mm -hmm. like Star Trek as much. I hate to say that, but Sarah J. Mass. I don't know. She's an author, and mm -hmm. she doesn't have like TV shows or anything like that. I probably couldn't do that, but I really do enjoy her books. That's my audio of choice lately. So yeah. Eric, what's your preferred fandom? Now I just need to know because I'm yeah, be, seriously, I'm a, it's an ethnographic question. Actually, I have a follow up mm -hmm. for you, Eric. Um, so I am a Star Trek fan. Um, so there's that one, but I actually like if we're talking like 21st century shows, I really enjoy the more recent Battlestar Galactica a lot. I do usually like I really like like alternative histories and whatnot. And so I started watching For All Mankind last week, but I have ah, to admit yeah. it is not grabbing me so far. It's very much like interpersonal drama versus like genre show. So it's been less appealing than I expected, unfortunately. It very much gets there, I will say. Um, not so much in the first season, but I I've been watching the season four as it comes out and it does get there. Courtney, what about oh. you? You have to answer now. 
I just read. I was like waiting for someone to be like Harry Potter. I was like holding on for someone to say they love to read <laughs> Harry Potter and you guys like both let me down. But I've actually I just keep reading the Hunger Games books over and over. Like I just keep wearing them out because I'm just waiting for her to pick Gail instead of Peta. Every time I'm just holding out hope. So, yeah. And I feel like we found another, like, you know, if the talent show doesn't work out, we could instead have like a sci-fi movie night or like a book, like a genre book club instead, because I I would be all about that on like Friday or Saturday night at the conference, you know, when you're a little burned out. I feel like that'd be fun. We need matching pajamas, though. Like the three of us. (laughs) I'm good. (laughs) We're getting matching pajamas. It is settled. Thank you. And thank you to all of our listeners. I have a big sweater, Christmas sweater that has a Death Star on it. And I really Mm. love it. So yeah, totally. I have a Santa riding a unicorn sweater, (laughs) Christmas sweater. (laughs) I love it. Christmas sweaters in March in LA. (laughs) Well, I will be there in my Harry Potter pajamas tagging along with you too. So I love it. (laughs) Thank you so much, Meredith. And thank you to all of our listeners for hanging out with us on this very special HBA fellow takeover of the Sausage of Science podcast. I'm Courtney Manthe Pierce, and you can find me on X as Holy Latoli. So I'm Eric. You can just find me on email. My email's in the show notes. You can find me on email as well. I like that answer, uh, but you can also find me on TikTok. So as uh, Meredith Houston, I talk a lot about anthropological stuff and how not to bury bodies. How to get away with murder. Yeah. <laughs> it was a pleasure meeting you, Eric. <laughs> you too. Always a pleasure, Courtney. And I will talk to you